I've developed all of these different rules so that I don't have to think about things. And I call them automatic rules for success. And it sort of just gets me out of my own head. Like a great example is going to the gym, right? Like I don't, I'm not one of those people who loves going to the gym. I'm not, I don't wake up motivated to go to the gym. Some people love it. I'm not that person. I never was that person. Uh, but I have a, I have a rule, which is I work out every day. And that rule takes me out of the conversation that I have in my head. Because when I'm when I was working out two or three days a week, it was always a negotiation. Oh, I didn't sleep well last night. I got a lot of work to do today. You know what? I'll make up for it tomorrow. I'll do extra at the gym tomorrow. And these are little lies that I would tell myself. But those lies, that mindset was just so destructive to actually accomplishing the goal that I wanted to, which is like, how do I make myself healthier? What do I need to do to make myself healthier? So I came up with this rule. I'm going to work out every single day. And the duration or the scope of that workout might change, but the fact that I'm working out doesn't change. So now the conversation goes from should I work out today to how do I fit this in today and what can I fit in? I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Shane Parrish. Shane is the entrepreneur and wisdom seeker behind Farnham Street and the host of the Knowledge Project podcast, where he focuses on turning timeless insights into action. Parrish's popular online course, Decision by Design, has helped thousands of executives, leaders, and managers around the world learn the repeatable behaviors that improve results. Shane's work has been featured in nearly every major publication, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Forbes. He is the New York Times bestselling author of Clear Thinking, Turning Ordinary Moments into Extraordinary Results. Today on the show, we discuss in depth six mental traps that many people fall into, including what they are how to avoid them and reverse them, and more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Shane Parrish to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Shane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Doug. You got it. And I would love to, to jump right in. And I think a good place for us to start is that there's so many things that get in the way of people's ability to think clear, to have clarity, to make decisions. And I know in your book, you talk about six things that get in the way of people's ability to think clearly. So I would love to know like what these, I mean, I like to look at them as these six mental or mindset traps that people can fall into. So if you could just walk the audience through each one of these in as in depth as possible, we can kind of go back and forth on each one too. I think they'd really appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. So just take a step back for a second. I've studied decision-making for 15 years, practical applied decision-making, not academic decision-making. And so one thing that I noticed in the real world was that people who consistently make better decisions tend to position themselves better. So they're not forced by circumstances into particular directions or decisions. And when you're forced by circumstances, by your position, you're not really thinking. So you've eliminated the ability to think if your circumstances dictate what you have to do. 
The second thing that they do really well, and this is sort of Rudyard Kipling's poem, but they they sort of manage their defaults really well. And I'll go into those defaults in a second, as you alluded to. And when you do those two things, when you position yourself and you manage your defaults, that's the only time that you can actually really think independently. And I want to preface thinking independently with thinking independently is really only valuable in the context of work and life when you think against the crowd and you're right. And to tie that in, so what does it mean to manage your defaults? Well, there's all these situations that tend to circumvent our ability to think. They just hijack us. They get us in trouble. We have these urges and we can't control them. More importantly, we're not even thinking about them. So we don't know we're making decisions. So I break them down into sort of four defaults. You have an emotional default, you have a social default, you have an ego default, and you have inertia default. And these four things are so powerful that they end up in all these circumstances hijacking your ability to think. So we think, we, t- we tend to be taught if you get the big decisions right, if you pick who to marry, if you choose where to live, if you pick the right job, then everything is set. And the great thing about those moments is we know we're making a decision. And generally, people are pretty rational. When they know they're making a decision, they think through the decision, pros, cons, whatever their formula for thinking through that is, but they're conscious that they're making that decision. But it doesn't matter if you pick the right partner if you go home and you don't invest in that relationship. It doesn't matter if you pick the right job if you don't show up and work your butt off. So all these ordinary moments, these Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, those accumulate and they determine how important that decision is in our life. And this is what turns ordinary moments into extraordinary. So when you're angry or emotional or you've had a bad day at work and these things take over, fear is a great one. You know, the fear of not only failing, but for a lot of people, the fear of success. Uh, takes over. And when these things take over, they hijack your brain so that you don't know you're making a decision. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, I think that fear can definitely play this massive role in preventing us from making these decisions. And I think oftentimes, at least in my own experience, when I'm not making a decision or I'm slow to make a decision because of fear, I'm like, all right, well, if I fail, does this mean that I'm going to be bad person. If I fail, does this mean I'm going to be laughed at or whatever the case may be? And what I found is that every time I faced my fears in a healthy and safe way, I should should add, that I've come out on the other side, a better, stronger version of me, even if I didn't succeed in the way that I thought I was going to or the way I'd hoped I was going to. One of my my friends, Paul Asiante, is, is the winningest coach in U.S. college sports history, probably possibly the winningest coach in in history of any sport. I think he had 218 consecutive victories. And he wrote a great book called Run to the Roar, which was you have to, instead of running away from your fear, you have to run into it and you have to explore that fear. And that's what separates world-class performers from other people. It's not that they're not scared, it's that they do it anyway. And so many of us, this goes to the social default, right? So many of us, we've evolved to fit into a tribe. If we weren't evolved this way, uh, we wouldn't exist today. We want to go with the crowd. But by going with the crowd, we don't do things differently. So one of the examples, a hypothetical example I sort of give in the book is like, imagine you're a ditch digger and you're digging a ditch and you can only use your hands. Well, you're, you're graded on your production. Well, Doug, you might dig a little bit faster than me, but at the end of the day, it might be a couple of handfuls. 
the only way to get ahead in that world is for me to work harder or longer. So I dig more dirt per hour or I work for more hours. Now, if I stop doing that and I invent a shovel, I go away for a month and I invent a shovel. Well, every day I'm inventing that shovel, I look like an idiot because Doug's moving up the scoreboard and I'm moving down the scoreboard because I'm not producing, I'm doing something different. And it's that fear of looking like an idiot that often holds us in place. We don't want to be wrong. But we also have another fear that a lot of people don't explore, which is the fear of success. And a great example of that is my parents when they wanted to quit smoking. And so one of the things that held them in place when they were trying to quit smoking is your environment often determines your behavior. They join the military right out of high school, go into the military, everybody's smoking, they start smoking. Well, it came time for them to quit and they couldn't quit because their environment, all these friends, quitting meant giving up their friends. So it's often a fear of success too, because they knew that they wouldn't be able to quit if they were still in that environment. And I think it's really important to explore that so you can really be conscious about what's holding you back and what's not. However, it's really hard to explore that. You have to set in place rules and sort of rituals around that so that you can get out of these defaults. You see that a lot too in the addiction recovery community where people are afraid to um, like let certain people in their lives go. They're afraid of you know, not drinking or not using a substance because they're like, all right, am I going to still be able to have the same social life? Am I going to still be going to be able to have fun? What are my friends going to think of me? What are my coworkers going to think of me? So it's very similar to what you just said. And I'd love to dive more into this, you know, as like the, the beginning of these enemies, these traps that people can fall into to prevent them from thinking clearly. So let's go more into the social default. What are some ways that people can identify if this social default is limited is limiting them in some area of their life and then how can they begin to um like transform that and have a better relationship with their social in, a, in social settings so that they can you know have success in life so, so socially we're trained to get along with other people uh, not only are we trained to get along with other people we want to be part of the crew we want to be part of the in club and being part of the in-club we're taught is all these trade-offs. And these trade-offs allow us to sort of be part of that group. And they also allow us to feel good about ourselves because now we belong to something. And it's that sense of belonging that really we want. We want to be taken care of. We want to feel respected. We want to feel loved. We're, we're getting something from being social. And that something isn't survival anymore like it used to be back in you know 10,000 years ago. That sense of belonging now is feeding our identity. And so one of the things that I talk about in the book at the very beginning is sort of we have these biological instincts. We're territorial, we're self-preserving, we're hierarchical, and we're ritualistic. And we think of animals, we are animals. And, and what do we have in common with animals? We, ha we share all these instincts. The difference between humans and these animals is that we can insert a pause between stimulus and response. So we're the only ones that can sort of reason before responding. I mean, that's arguable, but we're definitely the best at reasoning before we respond. So when we think of territorial, we think of a wolf, you know, walking around and marking its territory with its urine. But territory for us isn't that way. It's not necessarily physical territory, which we do respond when somebody comes on our physical territory, but our territory is mental. It's our sense of self. It's our identity. It's our ego. You, you, if you infringe on any of these things, you will create a situation where I'm less likely to think and I'm more likely to react. And those are the type of ordinary moments that sort of derail things. 
I think being able to understand all of that is so important. And so I, th I think just going deeper into this, like what are some ways that people can position themselves like moving forward in their lives? Like what are some things that they could do maybe on a daily basis, on a weekly basis to make sure that they're optimizing their, their social setting um, for an optimal way of living? So one thing you have to be conscious of is that your environment often determines your behavior. So the people you hang around, you will become like. So if you're uh, if your boss is an asshole, you'll become an asshole eventually. It's just a, a the way of life. The longer you're exposed to it, you just adapt it. And we think that we're strong enough to avoid these things with willpower. We're not. You go into meetings. What tends to happen in a meeting? You, you get into a meeting. There's a problem put on the table and everybody tries to solve it. That's like a prototypical type A workforce. Everybody's just trying to solve these problems. It's great. That's the type of environment you want to be in, but you often end up solving the wrong problem in part because we're social creatures, we're social animals. How do we get around that? Well, one thing is to recognize it in the moment, but that's really hard. That works maybe like 20, 30% of the time. It's like, am I just going along with what everybody else says here? Another thing is to put in safeguards in place to actually get people thinking, to just sort of jolt them out of this unconsciousness. One of those safeguards would be separating meetings between identifying the problem, sort of coming up with a solution to it. Another safeguard would be asking people instead, and I think everybody's been in this situation, you come to a meeting, you were given this sort of like 10-page document before, it's got an executive summary to kick it all off. Everybody just basically says their own version of that executive summary. They're paraphrasing just to signal that they've read it. So you're socially signaling to everybody. The value add there is I'm signaling to all of you that I've done my work, I should be in the room. But if you're leading that meeting, you can change it around. So the social signaling comes from unique insight. What do you know about this problem that nobody else here knows about this problem? How do we get out of this unconscious sort of willingness to be uh, wanting to get along with other people and trying to get the right outcome? And so the other phrase that I have in the book that encapsulates this is outcome over ego, which helps you get out of that. Like, are we are we just doing this because we've always done it or are we doing this because we're going to get a better outcome from doing it? And if you focus on the outcome, you can often work backwards and get a better result. Now that you're talking about ego, I think this would be a great time to get into one of the other traps and enemies that people fall into when it comes to thinking clearly. And that is this ego default, this ego trap. Talk a bit about that and why you think so many people struggle with this how they can know if their ego is in the way and then how they can have a healthier relationship with that default. We all have an ego. Ryan Holiday wrote a book called The Ego is the Enemy. That ego is also your friend, right? The ego compels us to do things we've never done before, like jump off a cliff. It compels us to build rockets and cars and do all of these other things. So on an individual level, it can be detrimental. On a societal level, it actually works really well. The question that we have to ask is, is our ego in charge or are we in charge? Outcome over ego is a great example of that sort of phrase where am I trying to prove myself right or am I trying to just get the best outcome? And those two things are often different. I realized this when I worked for an intelligence agency and I was a knowledge worker. I was in charge of solving problems. So I intuitively sort of thought that my solution to the problem must be better than other people's. But the minute you start thinking that, or the minute I started thinking that, I call this the wrong side of right. 
I would just start ignoring evidence to the contrary and start focusing on proving myself right instead of getting the best outcome. Instead of being right, I wanted to prove myself right. I wanted to feel right. And I think that that was a big wake-up call for me because I would spend all this time and energy and all this time and energy that I spent sort of trying to prove myself right, I wasn't working on the solution. It was actually really time-consuming. Your ego is often in charge and we don't know it because if you think of how you organize the world, we all do it in such a way that we're on the top of our hierarchy. Uh, I tell a story in the book about um, somebody who used to come in when I was a cashier back in high school and you know, he'd flash his Rolex, he'd park illegally, and he'd think that the world should sort of bend down to him. And in his way of organizing the world, status, money, power was the way to do that. And then I ended up getting fired for one of my comments back to him. And But when I was walking home, and I didn't realize this at the time because I was like 16, but I realized it sort of when I was in my early 30s. I walked away, and when I walked away, I was like, well, I might not have a job and I might be unemployed and I don't even have a car and I don't know how I'm going to pay my tuition. But the flip side of this is, you know, I'm not an asshole. And when I said that, this, this little phrase, I'm not an asshole, but I'm not an asshole, it sort of rearranged this world into a hierarchy where I'm on top. And then your ego sort of takes control, right? And so you start feeding that part of you. And it becomes really interesting to sort of think about all these different ways where our ego's in charge and not us. I think one of the biggest ways our egos get checked is through feedback from other people or feedback from situations. Like you mentioned the example in your own life, a lot of people, they just go through life and they're not having people that call them out on stuff, or maybe they don't face any kind of super adverse circumstance that forces them to look at themselves in the mirror and say, you know what, like my ego's gotten the best of me. The way I've been carrying myself and thinking has really got me in a dark spot. If somebody's listening to this and they're like, how do I know that even though I have an ego, how do I, how do I know that it's actually controlling my life? Like, what would you tell them to do? Yeah, I guess the first question is, are you getting the results you want or not? Are you in the place that you want to be or not? Because you're in charge of your life. And so if you're not getting the results you want, going back to something you said, Doug, feedback is super important. Where am I missing the feedback on this? How do I find that feedback? Is it through other people? Is it through my social network? Is it through uh, just being more open to what the world is giving me? But if I'm not getting the results I want and my ego's in charge, then... I'm going to ignore all that feedback and I'm just going to start becoming cynical. That's a good warning sign. Your ego is in charge, right? You think the world's unfair. It should work in a different way than it does. That's another big sign that, you know, your ego is in charge. You're sort of waiting for people to recognize you is another charge or another big sign that your ego is in charge. And a great example of that is sort of, I think we all know this person who's just sort of like, you know what, if they only realized my potential, they'd see how good I could be. And they're sitting there and they're waiting for the world to come to them. And they don't understand that that's not how the world works. You have to go positive and you have to go first. You have to deliver value before you ask for value. You have to go out there, put your best foot forward and drive ahead. And sometimes that means you're going to be wrong. Sometimes it means you're going to look like an idiot. Uh, but if you're not willing to do that, you're never going to be in a good place uh, in the world. But when you start saying those things to yourself, when you catch yourself thinking those things, then that's the moment where you need to be like, oh, these are getting in the way of the outcomes that I want. I'm not getting the outcomes I want. I need to change 
That's the feedback, right? The world is trying to teach me a lesson. I'm just ignoring it. That's the feedback I need to sort of take a different approach to this. What do people typically need to change in order to have a, a healthier relationship with their ego? Is it the way that they act on a daily basis? Is it their habits? Is it their their mindset? Like, What have you found even for your, yourself to be the main thing that you've needed to work on with that? Well, the two things are mindset and sort of reflection. And if you think about learning, right, because we, we want to learn from feedback. So to, to just dive into this for one second, how do we actually learn? We think that if we have an experience, we learn. And that's not necessarily the case. Actually, it's rarely the case. And so if, if you picture a clock and at the 12 hand, you have an experience, at the three hand, you have a reflection, at the six hand, you have a compression, and at the nine hand, you have an action. You sort of have this learning loop, as I call it. So you go from experience, like conversations and experience, you know, the one we're having, you read a book, that's an experience. You actually try to do something. That's another type of experience. Everything is an experience, but you don't really learn unless you reflect on that experience. And it's that reflection process that often identifies that your ego is in the way, that you're wrong, that there's a better approach to things. And when we skip that, we don't see it. We just come up with the compression and the compression or abstraction is sort of like, how will I remember this scenario? So you can almost think about it like compressing you know, a 10 gigabyte video into 100 megabytes. You have an experience and it's full of this high fidelity, but your brain can't keep track of all that information. So it needs to reflect on it and have a takeaway. Well, the world that we live in is often full of those takeaways. It's the illusion of knowledge. When we take away nothing, when we don't reflect, then we're not getting the feedback that the world's giving us that we might be wrong. The mindset should be open-minded to reflection, going back to outcome over ego. So when I say outcome over ego, that's my compression of a lot of experiences wrapped into one. And it's a reminder to me to sort of like pull those out of my head. But if I don't do the work for those experiences, then it's going to mean something different to other people. So it sounds like a good soundbite, but it's actually like a little piece of paper that I have on my monitor, which says outcome over ego. And that's something, it's just a visual reminder to me to sort of like get out of myself and my ego and being right and try to focus on what's the best outcome. So instead of tying my ego to being right, I want to tie my ego to be getting the best outcome for everybody involved. So a lot of people might say to somebody who's having trouble with their ego, they might say things like, just tell yourself you're worth it. Just tell yourself that you're going to live a great life. Just tell yourself that it is worth the risk in that you're going to learn from this. It becomes this, I don't want to say Pollyanna because it's not what I'm talking about, but it becomes this, this shift that people think they have to make. They just think positive and optimistic about their life on a consistent basis. Like I would love to know your thoughts on all that. I mean, this story you tell yourself is the most powerful story in the world. And it becomes self-fulfilling. If you tell yourself a positive story, it doesn't mean you're going to get a positive outcome. But if you tell yourself a negative story, you're most likely to get a negative outcome. I mean, I don't know anybody who sort of like goes around sort of feeling sorry for themselves, is constantly down on themselves, consistently telling themselves that story, uh, a negative story, and sort of gets what they want out of life. Uh, but that's not to say you have to have blind faith and sort of like the world is this great place and it's never going to take advantage of me or, you know, 
I'm going to uh, get the outcomes that I want. I think it's not about the confidence to get the ultimate outcome. It's the confidence to take the next step. And it's the courage you need to sort of like get up and just go to the gym. And so, you know, I've developed all of these different rules so that I don't have to think about things. And I call them automatic rules for success. And it sort of just gets me out of my own head. Like a great example is going to the gym, right? Like I don't, I'm not one of those people who loves going to the gym. I'm not, I don't wake up motivated to go to the gym. Some people love it. I'm not that person. I never was that person. Uh, but I have a, I have a rule, which is I work out every day. And that rule takes me out of the conversation that I have in my head. Because when I'm when I was working out two or three days a week, it was always a negotiation. Oh, I didn't sleep well last night. I got a lot of work to do today. You know what? I'll make up for it tomorrow. I'll do extra at the gym tomorrow. And these are little lies that I would tell myself. But those lies, that mindset was just so destructive to actually accomplishing the goal that I wanted to, which is like, how do I make myself healthier? What do I need to do to make myself healthier? So I came up with this rule. I'm going to work out every single day. And the duration or the scope of that workout might change, but the fact that I'm working out doesn't change. So now the conversation goes from should I work out today to how do I fit this in today and what can I fit in? And that's a very different mindset, but it takes all of these internal conversations you have and it sort of creates a rule where you avoid them. And we can do this with so many other things, right? And you think like our whole life, we've been taught to follow rules. There's like a weird irony to this, which is, you know, here's the speed limit, here's the tax code, here's the blah, blah, blah. And you're taught that if you violate rules, you get consequences. And so you learn a rule and you basically follow it. You don't even think about it. You just blindly sort of like follow the rule. But we've never really thought about how we can turn that around to benefit ourselves. How do we create our own rules that are in line with the type of person we want to be, in line with the direction we want to go, that allow us to become that person, that move us closer to the person we want to be? And so if you think about where you want to go in life, there's multiple ways to do this. One, you can identify what is a person who, who accomplishes that, how do they do that? What do they need to do in order to, so what rules can I create for myself in order to do that? Another example sort of around food that seems um, to resonate with people is don't eat dessert, right? So going back to social situation, going back to social pressure, taking you away from the things that you want. A lot of people want to eat healthier. They get to a social situation. They find it really hard to eat healthier. They find it hard not to drink. They find it hard not to have dessert when all your friends are celebrating you want to celebrate too, and they're going to nudge you to celebrate. So if you're relying on willpower not to eat dessert or drink, well, all of a sudden, I have to be really strong, probably at my weakest moment. It's like seven, eight o'clock at night. I've had a long day. A drink sounds really good. I'm not likely to make a good choice. And so we can create a rule, which is, you know what? I don't drink on weeknights. My rule is I don't eat dessert. And what happens is people don't really argue against rules. Like when's the last time you drove by a speed limit and like sent a letter to the city saying the speed limit's ridiculous? Well, the speed limit's a rule. They tell you what the rule is. You just follow the rule. Well, your friends are the same way. You tell them it's your rule. And as long as you're consistent with it, they're not going to argue with you. But if you're like, I don't eat dessert today, but I do the next day, well, then it's a negotiation you're going to have to have with them. And so it's like, how do we create these little moments where we're actually circumventing our own wiring to get to the outcome that we want? We're reprogramming our brain. So the little algorithm that runs in our brain, we can sort of opt out of that 
here's a new one. Let's run this one instead. And this one's going to get me where I want to go. This leads into something that I think is really important to talk about, which is one of the other enemies of clear thinking where you talk about thinking bad or not thinking at all. And that like a lot of times in situations, you know, if we're not prepped to think a certain way or react a certain way, we can respond emotionally or lose control or be passive aggressive or whatever the case may be. Talk a bit about why that is such an enemy for people when they're trying to make rational decisions and how can people get better at actually making the right decision in the midst of adversity? Yeah. So let's go through a couple scenarios, right? One being you're at work, uh, you know, you're in a meeting, there's four or five people there. Maybe you're competing with one of your colleagues for a promotion or you see yourself in competition with them and then they slight you. And it's just maybe a little passive aggressive comment, but now instinctively, right? They've infringed, going back to the biology, they've infringed on your territory. You become emotional. You become a bit, your ego starts to take over and you're like, who are you to slight me? I'm going to slight you back. You're not thinking in that moment, you're just reacting. And so we can learn different uh, rituals to sort of get out of this. If you look at professional sports, basketball players bounce the ball the same number of times before they make a free throw. Uh, you get the same thing in tennis. They bounce the ball. What are they doing in that moment? They're forgetting about the last play. It could have been the best play or the worst play of their career. It doesn't really matter. They're forgetting about that. They're centering themselves and they're thinking, they're bringing themselves back to the present moment. Before responding, you can have a rule. I always take a breath. If you have that rule, then you're going to get out of that moment. It just takes a split second to sort of opt out of that. Another scenario that sort of like derails people along these lines is you're at home. I don't know if you uh, you and your partner load the dishwasher the same way, but if, if one of one of you or loads it organized, the other one doesn't, it's inevitably going to sort of crop up that you, you get into this little tiff about this. And in that moment, if I tap you on the shoulder and I'm like, Doug, do you, do you want to pour water or gasoline on this? You're going to be like, I want to pour water on this. But the problem is you're not thinking, right? And so this little, this little slight sort of like you reply, it escalates. Your partner replies, they escalate. And then before you know it, you're not talking to each other. You're sort of shouting at each other, whatever goes on in, in your particular household. And, and this is an example of how these ordinary moments can go away. So what can you do? Well, a couple things. Go back to the, what we talked about at the very beginning, positioning, right? When I came home, was I in a position to give myself to my spouse or my partner? Did I leave everything that happened at work at work? Did I sort of like metaphorically leave those bags on the doorstep when I walked in? Am I high energy, low energy? Did I eat healthy during the day or am I sort of run down and aggravated? Second thing we talked about was managing the defaults. Can I control my urges to respond? Am I thinking or is this all just happening without me thinking for me? And so one thing that's really popular amongst people I talk with is like just metaphorically using that car ride on the way home or the walk on the way home to sort of like leave that baggage at the door. And if you work at home, which a lot of people do, you can go for a walk around the block, uh, which is super popular way to do the exact same thing. So yes, you work at home. No, you don't have a commute. That commute used to be the way that you would sort of like release this tension from work. You'd get excited about seeing your partner. You come home in a very different position 
than the first position. So if you're stressed and you've had a long day, it's going to be really hard to control your impulses. If you haven't eaten, you didn't sleep, you didn't do all these things right, you didn't put yourself in a position where it's going to be easy. But if you do those things, it's going to be a lot easier to manage your defaults. You can also have that rule that we talked about, which is, hey, you know what? Like, Let's step back here. Let's do a rewind. This is what I use with my girlfriend. I'm like, hey, let's just do this over again. Uh, let's back up 30 seconds and try this conversation again because it's not going the way that I wanted it to. So you've talked to a lot of high performers in your life on the podcast that you have. And obviously, you've got a lot of experience in being able to not only learn, but help people think better in their lives. I'd love to dive more into the example that you just shared about what people can do when they're in the midst of something that's tense. You talked about that taking a walk and just taking a step back can be something that's very resourceful for people to do. Anything else that's worked for you? I mean, maybe in the process of this book launch, I know it's, as we talked about before, it's very stressful. It's a, it's a, there's a lot that's going on. What other things have you seen that's worked consistently when somebody is in an, an escalated type situation other than walking that helps them kind of come back to center? So, so let's talk about two things before the situation in the situation. So uh, book launch, super stressful. The, you know, the kids get dumped on my doorstep and I'm now a full-time single parent. Didn't plan it, just happens. You, you have to deal with life as you find it, but life doesn't warn you about these challenges before they crop up. There's no like, hey, Doug, here's, uh, you know, you got five days, go home, get some sleep so you can be ready for this challenge we're going to give you. It just gives you these challenges. So what happens before the moment matters as much as what happens in the moment. And I'll give an example just to make this clear to people because I think it's super important to think about this. We think about thinking and decision-making as I'm going to make this decision from the moment on, but really... The position that we're in was dictated by all the decisions we made before this. So I came up with this with one of my kids came home and he sort of gave me a test and he had done really poorly on it. And he's like, I did my best. And anybody who has kids or played sports, you know, that's not the moment to talk to him. So I waited a little bit. I went back later that night and I'm like, okay, talk to me. I want you to walk me through it. It's going to sound really bad, but like, Go through all the details. You said you did your best. I really want to understand what it means to do your best in your eyes. And he's like, well, you know, I sat down at 10 a.m. I read all the questions. I looked at all the points they're worth. And I sort of allocated my time accordingly. And I did my best to answer each question. I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. Did you sleep well the night before? No. Why not? Well, I was cramming. Why were you cramming? I didn't study. Did you eat a healthy breakfast? No. Why not? Because I slept in. Why'd you sleep in? Because I was up cramming. And so we start thinking about, well, did you put yourself in the position to be successful? And so before um, we talk about how to handle that moment, there's so much that goes into that moment that's below the surface that dictates the options and choices we have in that moment. And it's like you're playing life on easy mode or hard mode. So an example we talked about was going for a walk. You go, After work, you have a ritual. You develop a ritual. Rituals are counterbalances to our biological uh, instincts. It's just as powerful. The ritual is, you know, it's four o'clock, my work day is over. Before I go and sit with my partner or meet up with my friends, I'm going to go for a little walk and I'm going to go for a walk around the block. I'm going to reflect on the day and I'm going to sort of like let that pass. Sleep is super important before we get to the moment. Did I sleep? Did I 
eat healthy? Did I do these little things that I could have done that put me in a position for success? Then when we hit the moment, it's a lot easier. You find, I don't know about you, but like if I eat healthy, uh, I go to the gym and I exercise, I get a good night's sleep, most of those little slights don't affect me. I don't even get road rage when I'm driving, right? Like it just doesn't happen. It's like, oh, whatever, you know, you, you're more calm internally. So what does it, what does that mean? It's easier to manage those defaults. So now I've put it on easy mode. That doesn't mean I'm always going to manage those defaults, but it means it's going to be a lot easier to manage them than it was before. So what else can you do? You can pause before you respond to things. You can sort of think through, am I coming at this from where's my intent the question I ask my kids is water or gasoline. That's all I have to say to them. I'm not telling them what to choose. That's a judgment. I'm telling them, do you want to put water on this situation or gasoline? You're going to make a choice in this particular moment. But we can just remember that phrase. It's three words. Water or gasoline. Is what I'm about to say going to move this conversation forward or is it going to pour gasoline on this? Am I uh, Going back to the positioning with your, your partner, your spouse, not only sleep, that's important, but have you connected? Are you constantly connecting? Because a friend of mine has this saying, he's like, there's a, it's Peter Kaufman. He's like, you have this patch of grass between you and everybody in your life. And if you water that grass, it's going to be really wet. And if you don't water it, it's going to be really dry. And what happens to dry grass? Well, any spark will set it on fire. But if you're investing in that relationship, if you're looking for win-wins, if you're sort of always on the same team as your partner, well, then that grass is going to be wet all the time. It doesn't matter how I load the dishwasher. We're just going to end up laughing about it. And so I think like we just think about that moment and there's things you can do in that moment. And you know, the least likely to work in the moment is recognize the situation for what it is. Like when's the last time you drafted an email, an angry email, and you caught yourself halfway through and you're like, oh yeah, you know what? I'm really angry. It's like, no, you're not thinking. So you have to create these little circumventions, which is like, how do I prevent this from happening in the first place? That's the most powerful mechanism to deal with this situation. The second is if I do find myself in this situation, how do I avoid doing the thing that I don't want to do? And that's where automatic rules take over. My rule is I don't send an email after I've had a drink. My rule is I don't send an email past nine o'clock. I schedule it for tomorrow. You wake up the next day, you'll change the whole email. You'll be like, man, I was going to be an idiot. This got me out of it. And you don't have to remind yourself of the rule. That's the most powerful thing with rules. They just sort of take over. You'll remember like, oh, I've had a drink. My rule is I'm going to send that person a nasty email in the morning. Well, you wake up in the morning, you're going to feel a lot better and you're not going to do that. Water or gasoline. I think that's like probably the biggest takeaway from the podcast so far because it's like that's so simple to remember. And I think obviously we're all smart human beings and we love being able to have autonomy and solving problems for ourselves. And that just allows people to have this broad perspective of ideas they can do in those moments to be like, all right, like water or gasoline. Like if I do this, is it going to make my situation worse or better? And then like move on with the right choice. I think this goes in line with one of the other like um, thinking traps, um, enemies you talk about in the emotion default. I think there, it's it's very similar to what we were just discussing. Talk about why you chose this as one of the enemies, and how can somebody begin to like transform their emotional default so that they can start to have more clarity about what they truly want in life and, and think better. 
So why did I choose this as a default? Well, I worked for a person at one point in my career who was incredibly emotional and angry. Uh, and I just saw the results that that sort of got in life. And I was like, you know, this person isn't thinking. Uh, they're just responding. And not only are they responding, they're doing it in a way where they're not getting the information they need to make good decisions. So it's even if they were thinking in that moment, uh, when you respond emotionally, people just stop going to you. They stop giving you information. They, they sort of avoid you. So you become insulated from reality, insulated from feedback, insulated from the information you need to make decisions. We're generally, going back, we're pretty good at rational decisions, but what do we need for that? We need sort of information. We need the right information. We need fewer blind spots. The more blind spots we have, the worse decisions we make. So two problems with emotional decision-making. One, if you do it consistently, people don't give you the information you need to make the decision. Two, you're not thinking in the first place. What do we do to get around that? Well, it starts before the moment. Right. If you recognize that you're emotional, Alcoholics Anonymous has a thing, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. It's called HALT. You make the worst decisions when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. You're not thinking. You're trying to satisfy a need. What need are you trying to satisfy? How do I avoid getting in those situations? Well, hungry, you can control that. You know, Have I eaten? Have I done all the things that are putting me in a good position to avoid this moment? The second thing you can do is, I mean, Yes, you can recognize when you're angry, you can feel your hands tense up. And that's what every book tells you to do, which is like, just recognize this moment. The other thing you can do is just take a breath, have a rule. I always take a breath before responding. That'll dampen the situation just enough that you're going to start thinking about it instead of responding. And you're, you might say something you regret, but it's going to be a lot better than what you would have said if you weren't thinking at all. Third thing you can do is like, what are the things that I can do in these moments? What are the rules that work for me, particularly in my environment, my situation? It might be a sticky on your computer like I have, which is outcome over ego. It might be a visual cue that reminds you of these things to just take it down a notch in these moments. And we don't think about those things because we think we have the willpower to just recognize when this stuff's hang like happening to us, but we don't. And, and it's so unfortunate. Um, that we, you know, stickies look silly. That's what a lot of people tell me. And it's like, yeah, but they work. I mean, going back to like, are you getting the outcomes you want in life? Do I want to look silly and get the outcomes I want? Or do I want to not look silly and sort of wonder why I'm not getting all the things that I feel I deserve? So is that like similar to what you were talking about with, with ego as far as how can somebody tell if their emotions are getting the best of them consistently. Cause a lot of times, a lot of it's subconscious it could be stuff that people learned from their parents in childhood or through relationships or whatever the case may be that who somebody is, is just who somebody is. And they have no idea that their emotions are even getting the best of them. Sometimes there's signs, right? Like, especially when it comes to angry, uh, you know, you're consistently churning through friends. You don't have a lot of friends for a long period of time. People are avoiding you. They're not telling you information. You find yourself constantly not invited to things. These are all feedback signs that maybe your emotion, uh, your emotions are getting in the way of the things that you want in life. Uh, 
how do I accomplish things is another one, right? Which is sometimes we become so narrow-minded on getting to a goal that the way that we pursue that goal is mutually exclusive from the way that we want to be in life. And the story that I tell in the back of the book is sort of about Ebenezer Scrooge, right? He wanted to be the most respected, wealthy, well-known person in his community, and he accomplished all those things. And then what did he want at the end of his life? Well, he wanted a do-over because the way that he was pursuing them is not win-win. And if you think about every relationship you have with your your kids, your partners, your suppliers, anybody in life, it's there's only four possible permutations. There's win-win, win-lose, lose-lose, and lose-win. But only one of those is going to survive over time. The other way to get around the emotion uh, uh, or get around an emotional uh, default is to think long-term. So change your mindset to long-term thinking. And what does that do? Well, it changes the framing in your head of how I'm going to respond to a particular situation, especially if you get emotional at work, but not at home. Well, that's an indicator that what you're doing at work is taking a transactional approach and what you're doing at home is taking a long-term approach. Would taking a long-term approach at work be more beneficial? And what does that mean? Well, if I go into a conversation with somebody at work and I'm like, in my head, I'm going to work with this person for 20 years. It's going to change how I approach the conversation. It won't change the conversation. It's going to change. It's not going to change the fact I have the conversation. It's going to change how I approach the conversation. I'm going to approach it more like my partner and come from a loving place, a place of win-win, a place of I want to be on this compounding sort of bus with you. I would love to know from you about one of these other traps that I identified when I was reading your book. and. And it's, it's talking about our ability as humans to manage how we handle mistakes. And I, I just, and it's very in line with what you were just talking about, about playing the long game when it talk, when, when, and talking about responding to situations when it comes to emotion. Because I feel like when we make mistakes, emotions are often high because we're hard on ourselves, right? And when we make mistakes, we often feel like they're going to limit us from ever achieving anything again. So talk a bit about um, how we can manage mistakes. Well, for most people, the default is that we didn't make a mistake, right? The, what we do is we interpret information such that our ego is in charge, right? We're interpreting information such that something happened we couldn't have foreseen. It was somebody else's fault. We have no ownership in this situation. And, and the sort of uh, line that I use in the book is it might not be your fault, but it's your responsibility. And that's just sort of like dampens that down a lot in the sense of it doesn't matter like it you want the feedback so you want to get better but you have to recognize that you made a mistake or and the way that you can do that is instead of thinking a mistake as binary you can think of what's my contribution to this problem what did i do that would have reduced the problem made it not happen and then I can start thinking from an ownership perspective but if you can't admit your mistakes then you're never going to think like that it's really hard to do that because we want to interpret the world again, coming back to we're hierarchical, we're ego driven. We want to see ourselves at the top of the pecking order. We don't want to admit that we make mistakes. And if you can't say that you've made a mistake or you would do something different, I mean, I did this the other day. I was actually on a podcast and I used an analogy. And the analogy was the whale that surfaces gets harpooned. And the person was like, well, all whales have to surface. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not the point of the analogy. We got into this like sidetrack about it. But I was like, you know what? That was a mistake. I shouldn't have brought that up in that moment because 
it doesn't make sense to some people in a different context. And so can I come up with a better analogy? But if I can't recognize that that's a mistake and sort of course correct on it, I'm never going to get a better outcome. I could have easily said, well, you know, that person uh, doesn't know what they're talking about or they just didn't get what I was saying. And these are the ego things that sort of like drive the hierarchical, you know, self-preserving territorial me. And they manifest itself in a situation where I convince myself I'm right, even though I could have taken a better approach. And at the end of the day, it's like right or wrong, doesn't matter. Could I have taken a better approach that would have got a better result? If the answer is yes, then I should adapt. But you have to recognize that you're making these mistakes in the first place. I think a big part of personal growth is accepting that mistakes are going to be made as part of life and as part of somebody who tries things in life and not letting them get in, in the way. I think the bigger part of that is something you just touched on, which I'd love to dive into, is that in order for that to really be true, you have to like reflect and learn from mistakes that you made and identify like, you know, why it happened, what you're going to do better next time, self-reflection. What's the process like for most people if if they're listening to this, they're like, all right, like, you know, I appreciate Shane opening up about the mistake he made on the podcast. I want to know like the next time I make a mistake that maybe is in a relationship or at work, something that can carry some significant weight, how I can not only identify it, but reflect on it so that I can grow. Yeah. So a couple of approaches. One, if you're making a decision and you want to get feedback on your decision, the, the thing to do is take out a piece of paper and write down sort of like in your own handwriting, the situation, the context, what you think about it, what the variables are, why they matter, what you think the most likely outcome is. Put it away. I mean, read it. So there's two things here. One is like, read what you wrote the next day. Does it still make sense? And then make your decision. And then go back to it in three to six months and be like, oh, now I have new information. You know, was I right or wrong? You can't convince yourself that it's not your handwriting. That's the whole point of doing it in your handwriting. So it's like, I missed something. Well, that's good feedback, right? I can reflect on, oh, I need to incorporate that next time. Again, going back to the experience reflection connection, if you have an experience and you don't take time to actively reflect on it, you're not really learning from it. Uh, you're taking away the wrong lessons from it. What does reflection look like? Well, it looks like what we just talked about, right? What's my contribution to the outcome not being what I wanted it to be? What would I do differently next time if I had the opportunity in the same situation? What did I miss? What didn't I see? Could I have done something better? Could I word things differently? You can do micro reflections, which is like after every meeting, you can just do a 15 second sort of check-in. Did I say something stupid? Did I want to rephrase anything? Did anybody say anything that surprised me? Well, why did it surprise me? Does that mean that my version of the world is wrong? Or does it mean that maybe I don't understand something? Maybe I want to follow up with them for a coffee. It's that micro reflection on decisions. You want to sort of have a longer reflection. And those decisions are sort of like, did the outcome happen? Because often the feedback loop between that is so large. That's why you need to wait a few weeks, months to actually start getting information. And the feedback is not only is the time distance large, the feedback's noisy and the environment's changing. And this is what makes it easy to tell ourselves, oh, it's not our fault. Something happened. You know, we come up with all these excuses. So if you catch yourself saying that, it's like, well, flip it around, which is like, sure, you know, maybe it wasn't my fault. It's my responsibility to learn from this situation. And in order to learn from this situation, I need to identify my contribution to this particular problem. I'd love to dive into the sixth um, like trap and one of the other enemies that you talk about 
in your book when it comes to thinking mindset, and that's the inertia default. And I think a lot of people struggle with this because they feel like, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm doing good enough. I'm doing okay. Like I'm doing better than this person. Or they'll be like, well, if I have too big of goals, does that mean that I'm arrogant? Or what if I fail? Like all these things that can run through people's minds. Talk about the importance of the inertia default, why it holds people back and what they can do about it. Yeah. So I think, you know, one way to think of it, this is, I talk about it in the book is the zone of average. It's like you're in a relationship that is uh, too good to leave, but too bad to stay. And so you just have this inertia and every day that goes by, it becomes more and more of an anchor or you're working in a job that doesn't really serve you uh, and you're not doing anything about it. And you're telling yourself this story, going back to your mindset, you're telling yourself this story that, you know, this job sucks. And every day you tell yourself that story, it becomes, you start to see only the things that suck. So your whole world changes. You start to become unlucky. Everything goes against you. And that's because the story that you're telling yourself is one of that. Inertia is super powerful. You know, I've been in this relationship for X number of years. Why would I break it and start all over again, even though it's not serving me? But in that moment, it doesn't mean you're going to break the relationship. It could mean that, you're, you know what, it's not serving me. And I need to have a really difficult conversation with my partner to see if we can figure out a way where we can get to a point that we want to be. But then you're like, I don't want to jeopardize it. And so you, you get in this zone of average where it's like, I'm okay accepting this. And if you are okay, that's fine. Most of us aren't consciously doing that. We don't recognize that the story we tell ourselves becomes self-fulfilling, right? Work sucks. I hate my job. Well, you know, every day is going to be a grind for the next 20 years if that's the story you're telling yourself. So it might suck. That's fine. What can I do about it? Just because I've gone to this job every day doesn't mean I have to keep going to this job every day. Can I change that momentum into something that works for me? Habits by themselves, habits can be like I'm in a relationship, habits can be any habit in your life, anything that you've done, they're neutral. They're not good or bad but that you have to be conscious about whether they're serving you or whether they're not serving you. And you can do this through like periodic check-ins with yourself. You can do an hour long walk with yourself and just start asking yourself about all these different things. Like, is the relationship I'm in serving me? What would, an, what would it look like if it was better? If, uh, you know, what would it look like to be a better partner in that relationship as well? Is the job I'm in serving me? If not, what can I do about that? What can, do I need to change organizations? Do I need to develop new skills? Do I need to do all these other things? But we're not conscious of that. And then what happens is we wake up at sort of 60 or 70. We're in a relationship that's not serving us in part because, you know, the story we told ourselves was that it wasn't serving us. And what do we do when we tell ourselves that story? Well, we stop engaging in the relationship. We stop engaging in the relationship. Our partner stops engaging in the relationship. All of a sudden, you start growing apart. Same as the job, you know, you retire at 60, you've just wasted like, I don't know, 40 years of your life at something that you didn't want to do that wasn't giving you any meaning or fulfillment or joy. Uh, and I think, you know, we just have to be conscious of that. The flip side of this is, you know, you want to do this on a regular basis. This isn't like a one and done thing because, you know, the habits that you develop, the inertia you develop at 20 is going to look very different than the inertia at like 25 and 30 and 35 and 40 and 45. The things that you want are going to be different. And ultimately, you have to keep that goal in mind too. There's a difference between getting what you want and wanting what's worth getting. And that means you have to consciously sort of like work backwards from like, where am I going? What is the ultimate sort of place I want to be? 
And a great way to do that is just think about, envision yourself sort of at end of life, you're lying on a bed and all your loved ones are around you and they're talking about you and you can hear them, but they think you're unconscious. So they don't know you're awake and they're saying all these stories about you. And it's like, what stories are they saying? What was valuable in life? And I think that'll help give you the perspective you need to maybe shift. Am I doing, am I living my life and going after my goals in a way that is going to be conducive to them saying the things that I want to do, oh, saying the things I want them to say. So, so say somebody is listening to this and they, they're doing some self-reflection and they've, they're figuring out that um, they're in this zone of average. Um, how can they um, begin to identify like what would be a good next step or decision for them to make in that moment so that they can you know, move on from that? Well, the first step is to recognize that that's not going to change by itself. So if you, if you recognize that you're in the zone of average, the, the tendency in that moment, it's actually pretty easy to sort of recognize that you're in that. What's really hard is to recognize it's not going to change by itself. Waiting is not going to make it easier. Waiting is not going to solve the problem. You have to take positive action. Uh, positive kind sort of action. Positive kind action is like, what skills can I develop? Uh, how do I broach this conversation with my partner? It's in, from a place of safety and from a place of loving, right? Again, going back to that long-term relationship, you still have to approach that conversation as if you're going to be in a relationship with this person for the next 20 years. You want to be in a relationship with this person for the next 20 years. But right now, at this particular moment, this relationship isn't giving me what I need, and I find myself disengaging. And you don't want me to disengage as my partner. So let's talk about this. Let's explore this a little bit together in a safe and vulnerable way. And I think those conversations are hard, and, and that's one of the reasons that we avoid them. It's much easier to say, oh, you know what? This is just a phase. This is, you know, they're going through something. And again, putting it on them. We're reducing our contribution to the problem to nothing, putting everything on an external sort of person or influence. We're the victim here. Uh, and that's the story we're telling ourselves. Going back to story is the most powerful thing. Our ego is in charge. We're telling ourselves we're the victim. When we think we're the victim, everybody else is the enemy. We can't do anything right. Or we tell ourselves the opposite story. We're the hero. Well, the truth is you're neither of those things and you're all of those things. And so the, the way out of this is to have an active conversation with yourself, if it involves work or maybe your boss, have an active conversation with your partner and come from a place of, I want to be here. I'm engaged. I'm starting to find myself getting negative about work. I'm starting to find Mondays aren't really exciting anymore. What can we do about that together and problem solve together? Shane, this has been awesome. Um, where can people buy the book if they want to do so? How can they follow along with you on social media and find the podcast and stuff like that? Yeah. So the podcast is The Knowledge Project. You can follow me on any platform, basically just uh, search for Shane Parrish. And the book is called Clear Thinking. It's available everywhere in the world, I think, at this point. So hopefully you can find a copy. If not, send me an email, shane at fs.blog, and I'll, I'll help you track down a copy. Awesome. I'll be sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. And thanks again for coming on. I think my audience is really going to enjoy this.